welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is from our Ask the Expert category and is mostly targeted towards allergists and physicians, but may be a useful conversation for anybody who'd like to listen. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Michael Schatz, who is the Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice. Dr. Schatz is a Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego, and Practicing Allergist at Kaiser Permanente San Diego Medical Center, where he served as Chief of Allergy for over a decade. Dr. Schatz has a long and accomplished career as a clinician, researcher, and past president of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. And today, Dr. Schatz is going to discuss one of the journals published by the Academy, as well as important considerations surrounding peer review in general. Dr. Schatz, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and welcome to our show. Well, my pleasure, Dave. Thank you for for having me, and and I'm delighted to talk about certainly one of my favorite subjects. Excellent. Okay. Well, so speaking of, uh, the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice, which is a mouthful, and I'm just going to abbreviate from here on in, in practice, is a young journal, and its first first issue was published in 2013. How does this differ from the um, previous journal, the older journal, uh, Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology? Uh, Yes, well, and and that's, of course, a good question. JCI has been our longstanding academy journal, um, but it was felt that, that having a journal that was more focused clinically and, and practically would be valuable for, for our members and for the specialty. And, and so the real difference is, is in content. The JCI content has a real emphasis on translational research with certainly some high-impact clinical articles and some basic science. But in practice, really publishes only clinical research. And, and our goal is to provide practical information that's useful for clinicians. And, and I think it's relevant to bring up our vision at this point, because, again, what we're trying to do is accomplish that vision. We want to be an indispensable resource for clinicians who manage patients with asthma, allergic, immunologic, and related conditions in order to optimize the care and health of these patients. So everything we publish uh, is aimed uh, to accomplish that vision. Okay, and as a new journal, are you seeing a growing interest in in practice over recent years? Well, yes. The thank, thankfully, uh, there really has been a lot of growth. Um, you know, as a new journal, one wonders: is there really the niche for it that we think there is? Um, and and we have certainly found that there seems to be. The number of submissions has grown rapidly. Um, that we we had a 15% increase in. 2018 compared to the prior year, and we're already two months ahead uh, of last year's number at this time. So definitely have seen substantial growth. Um, If we look at the number of pages published um, in 2018, 
uh, we had 2,178 pages published versus 1,270 in 2016, um, and we're on pace, on pace for a further increase this year. So definitely we, see, we are seeing growth uh, in the interest and, and the output uh, of in practice. Oh, that's great. And it's a wonderful resource, not only for those who are looking to submit their, their work for peer review and publication, but also for all of us in practice as well. And can you describe, you mentioned the differences between JACI and in practice, but can you describe the different types of articles that are published within in practice? Yes, be, be happy to. Um, we have a wide range of articles, all trying to accomplish uh, a bit of a different purpose, you know, toward the ultimate goal of providing that useful information. So our, our classic uh, research article is the full-length original article. Um, we also have a highlights box for each article, which basically tries to put in a capsulated summary, what's known, what does this add, and how does it affect management? Um, so we certainly try to look at every original article through that lens. Then we have briefer, uh, if that's a word, communications, um, similar to the letters to the editor in JACI. These are a thousand words or less. They're meant to get across a more limited but still important message. Um, we have a variety of review articles, and, and there are various types, um, which I don't know is really worth going into, but each type of review article tries to prevent the information in a, in a little bit of a different way maybe case-based, maybe pro-con, um, uh, focused on management of, a whole, of, a, of an entity or a, a more limited piece. Um, sometimes it's, it's uh, symptom or, or sign-based, um, but all trying to bring together the information in a few pages um, of, of a given topic, what's known, and again, to help the clinicians use that information with their patients. Um, we have a feature called Images in Allergy, and as the name implies, it, it uh, presents a useful educational image with some background information um, about uh, what that image means, again, to the practitioner. Um, we have a feature, Practice Options Beyond Our Pages, um, which is a critique of an important article published in another journal, again, trying to, to uh, distill the clinical importance uh, of that uh, to our readers. We have a difficult cases feature based on the difficult cases presentations at the annual meeting, um, which is done with the New Allergists and Immunologists Assembly and their mentors. These are written up then and actually available for MOC uh, credit. Um, I should mention, by the way, that when I was talking about review articles, at least three of those articles in every issue are available for CME. We have an Ask the Expert feature, um, which takes the website, the Academy website, Ask the Expert feature, um, the ones that are most generalizable, and publishes them. And then, of course, we have editorials, which, which uh, we hope provide a nice perspective uh, about the meaning of, of uh, perhaps our, some of our more important uh, articles. Wow, that is quite the variety. Uh, that's a robust offering. Uh, amazing. And, um, you know, despite being only in the sixth year of publication, uh, there's already been some changes. Can you highlight some of the recent changes and additions for in practice as well as some of your thoughts regarding future direction? 
Yes, and happy to talk about that because we, we, you know, we do want to to think about the future uh, and always try to innovate if we can. Um, so the one of the most important things is, as you mentioned, we we are we have been every other month um, since our inception, um, but starting this year we are on a track to become monthly. So there will be eight issues this year, ten issues next year. And then we will be monthly in 2021. So that's a, a big and important change. Um, one of the new things that we are just about to launch is an expedited review process for randomized controlled trials. There are, of course, lots of ways to provide evidence beyond the randomized controlled trial, but that still is the gold standard for intervention studies. Um, and in order to make sure that we are able to provide the best of those, uh, we're offering this expedited review. It will be, it will be uh, ideally, the review will be within one week. The decision will be within two weeks. And again, we hope that will attract um, additional excellent randomized controlled trials. We are currently updating the website um, to make it more user-friendly. Um, if, if, if a person hasn't gone to the website uh, of the journal, I really encourage them to do so. There's just a lot of useful information there. Uh, one sees the newest in press articles, the search capacity in, in various ways that one wants to, to do a search is really terrific. There are collections uh, for various topics um, and one can download slides that basically most of the images that appear in the articles, uh, if you go online and click on that article, you can download those images as, as uh, PowerPoint slides. So lots of features to the website that we're currently trying to update, as I say, to make more user friendly. And then finally, and I think very importantly for our audience, uh, in September, we'll be sending out a member survey. Mm. Certainly, certainly nothing is more important to us than trying to satisfy the needs of our members. And this is our opportunity uh, to see if we're doing that. And so we really hope that as many people as possible will respond to that. Uh, we obviously want to hear about the things we're doing right, uh, but we, of course, want to hear about the things that we can do better. Well, thank you for detailing all of that. I, I know, I know for myself, and I know I'm sure a lot of our listeners and members, we really appreciate um, the fact that you value not only input, but you want to make this a great experience and something worthwhile for the readers as well. And um, I applaud you on all of your efforts. I think it, it's going great so far. Well, thank you for that, Dave. Yeah. Now, um, let's talk about impact factors for for a moment, because uh, the impact factors have recently been updated for both JACI as well as in practice. Can you help all of us better understand what an impact factor means and, and why it's important? Um, yes, be happy to. We, we certainly, that's very important uh, in, in our field. Um, what an impact factor is, uh, is basically it's a ratio and it's the citations in one year to articles published in the prior two years, that's the numerator, divided by all of the articles published in those prior two years. So it's in theory the mean number of citations per article. Um, we had an 8.4% increase uh, this past year that went from 6.966, not sure why there are quite so many decimal points, but 6.966 to 7.550, 7.550 to 
we maintained our, our position as second in the field of allergy out of 27 journals, um, second only to our sister journal, JACI, which had a 6.4% increase. They went from 13.258 to 14.110, and of course, first in the field. Um, its importance, somewhat intuitively, um, is that it, it, it's at least one measure of impact in terms of how much the content influences or relates to other work in the field. If you're, cite, if you're cited, um, in theory, that has some meaning to the authors of the article that is, is citing the work. Um, part of the reason, it's certainly not our major goal, but, but part of the reason we are certainly trying to, to maximize it um, is because it attracts high quality submissions. Uh, and again, if we're to bring the best to our readers, we need to do that. But we definitely don't think it's the most important measure of our clinical impact, um, simply because some very clinically impactful articles may not be highly cited, but we still want to provide those uh, for our clinician readers. So that's that's what I would say about the impact factor. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining that a little bit further. Now, from what you've described so far, I can only imagine that being the editor-in-chief of InPractice must keep you very busy. Can you help us understand uh, what your position entails? And if you're willing to share, I'd really be interested to learn what you enjoy most about your role. Well, I'm definitely happy to, to, share, to share all of that. I'll try not to take too long. Uh, <laughs> One aspect has to do with the manuscripts. Um, you know, we have we have an editorial team uh, of manuscript editors that are four of us. I'll I'll say a little more about that later. But the responsibility for the submitted manuscripts is divided among the four of us based on expertise, and we we fortunately have a nice range of expertise. Um, and and so I'm the primary editor for a portion of the submitted manuscripts. And that has a number of processes involved. Similarly, we divide up the responsibility for theme issues as, as, as people who see the journal know every one of our issues has a theme um, and the review articles are on that theme. We, we think that works well and we hope our readers do as well. And so we divide up the responsibility among the four editors um, for the theme issues and those review articles and I share the responsibility as well. But as editor-in-chief, then beyond that, um, I assign the manuscripts to the editors, review all the decisions, and develop and organize the lineup for each issue. And then with input from the team, I'm responsible for reports to the Academy Board of Directors, for interactions with our editorial board, which includes emails and conference calls, and the editorial board meeting at the annual meeting. I'm responsible, again, with the team input for choosing new editorial board members, choosing themes, and for our related activities, such as the Virtual Journal Club and the Fellow Faculty Reviewer Program. And then finally, through multiple emails daily and conference calls, at least weekly and often more, I work with our outstanding managing editor and the rest of the terrific editorial team to keep all of the moving parts moving appropriately and to identify ways to enhance and, and innovate regarding process and content. So, so those are the duties. And, and in terms of what I enjoy most, um, I do have to say uh, this, this is a, a labor of love. 
and I really find all of my work as editor-in-chief to be interesting and educational and compelling and fulfilling. But what I enjoy most uh, are the incredible people I get to work with, um, particularly the Academy members of the in-practice editorial team, managing editor Don Angel, deputy editors Bob Zeiger and Scott Sisherer, and associate editor Dave Kahn. It is truly a dream team and an absolute joy to work with. Oh, it, well, you can just tell how much you really love what you do, and it's fantastic. And I think we all see, um, we all benefit from all of the labor of love that you just described. And I'm curious, do you find that, do you have pretty much a, a set routine in regards to the schedule for uh, reviewing and, and publishing these issues every month or every week, or, or are things highly variable? Well, I mean, in terms of, do you mean in terms of my own personal work on this or, or um, um because in terms of preparing, there's definitely a schedule in terms of when articles have to be submitted, when the lineup is submitted. It's very organized in terms of working with the publisher. Um, but but in terms of time spent based on, on some of this work, of course, it has to fit in with clinical duties and, and other duties. Um, so it, it basically, in that sense, fits in when it can. Um, but I've definitely tried to organize my schedule so that that uh, there is time for this every day, um, so so that we can be timely. Um, and of course, it's a it's a high priority uh, in my life. Sure. And so you're saying that in addition to all of these responsibilities uh, in regards to the journal, you're also clinically active and seeing patients as well. Uh, yes, I I currently see patients 50% time. Um, wow. Which, which really, I must say, it, it, it works so well. It's so synergistic with the journal. A day doesn't go by that I don't see a patient that I think of something I saw in the journal. Um, literally a couple of days ago, I, I printed out an article um, for a patient uh, who had something that I really had sort of not heard of uh, before this article, and, and we agreed that, yeah, that's probably what she had. So the, the journal really informs my clinical practice, and I see it every day. And I feel that, you know, continuing my clinical practice hopefully informs the decisions and, and uh, uh, input I give to the journal. Okay. Well, great. I look forward to your book on uh, time management in the near future as well. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, we won't go into that. <laughs> so, um, if it's okay, let's switch gears a little bit because we, we and this has been a great insight in regards to um, uh, JACI in practice. But I'd like to shift the conversation towards the overall process of peer review. Can you help us better understand what this concept of peer review means and and how that strengthens the publication process? Um, yes, I mean it's. I mean clearly, if if we look at at, at important aspects of what goes on in a journal's world. Peer review is is critical, and I think it is worth taking a step back and saying, you know, what's it all about? Why do we do it? Um, and and as I've thought about that, I, I think that one starts with the idea that that published scientific articles have the potential to inform clinical decisions, that, you know, to be translated to the health and lives of patients, and also serve as the building blocks for further research advances. So that makes it really important that they are as valid, as true, quote unquote, as they can be. 
So the peer review process, I think, maximizes the chances that those published articles are worthy of this critical role. Um, content experts in the chosen field and biostatistical experts you know, help assure the readers who, who are using this information that it's internally and externally valid, unbiased, and as clearly presented as possible. Um, and, and so I'd emphasize that, that the process not only determines what's worthy of publication, uh, that's important, but even more important, this peer review process invariably improves the content and the presentation uh, of the accepted articles. And in your opinion, what are some of the downsides to peer review? And, and one always has to think about that. It certainly slows down the manuscript evaluation process. Um, we, we try very hard to have as fast a turnaround as possible, but our reviewers are busy people, um, and, and sometimes authors have to wait longer than any of us would like, um, so it slows down the process. And the other big downside is it requires a huge amount of time and effort from the many individuals who volunteer to be reviewers, and it is a volunteer job. Um, and then, of course, sometimes, even though we, we want to we we're doing this to get unbiased opinions, reviewers can have individual biases that influence their recommendations. Um, and, and in that way, that's why we certainly like to have at least two reviewers for each article and often more. Um, but there's no question in my mind that the benefits of peer review far outweigh those downsides. Mm. And how are any disputes among reviewers refereed? What's the process that you have to, to try to reconcile when those issues arise? Yes, it's, it's a good question, and, and, I, and I think the answer falls into a couple of categories. Sometimes, I mean, again, hopefully we as the editor have some expertise in the area, so we sometimes are the deciding vote when, when peer reviewers don't see it the same way, um, if we feel comfortable doing so. And, you know, if it seems to us um, that one, one position seems more legitimate, but probably more often than that, we would get a third reviewer. Uh, and often that third reviewer would be an editorial board member. Um, and, and that usually, usually helps us resolve the issue. You know, we, we definitely try to make the best decisions we can, um, but, but we know that sometimes they're wrong. And, and in that case, and you know, it's not that we exactly want to encourage uh, rebuttals, um, but they're appropriate. Um, and so, so we do get an occasional decision rebuttal, and sometimes that does allow us to, to reevaluate things and change our minds. Um, um, but, but that's sort of the, the answer to when there are disagreements. Fortunately, uh, and it always bothers me when one reviewer says accept as is and the other one says decline. But <laughs> that's not comfortable. Most of the time, that sort of disagreement doesn't happen. Oh, okay. Oh, well, I can attest as a reviewer um, that I'm always a teensy bit nervous. Um, to I want to make sure that my review is is at least somewhat in line with the other reviewers. Um, and um, you know, it would be uh, somewhat discouraging if I was way off base compared to somebody else. So it's nice to hear what it's like on the other end. Yes, well, and of course, we appreciate your reviewing. And, you know, one of the educational pieces of this is that, as you know, when you do a review and then the the decision is made and you're sent information about that decision, you do see what the other reviewer wrote as well, or the other reviewers, 
And that definitely uh, is part of the educational experience for the reviewer. Yeah, and you know, while we're on the topic, you mentioned um, several times that the reviewers are volunteers, and a lot of them are allergists or other medical professionals who volunteer their time to review the articles that are submitted. What are some of the other benefits uh, for these reviewers, and how can our listeners who may be interested in reviewing submissions get more involved? Well, we, we certainly need more reviewers, so I'll be happy to discuss that. Um, one benefit is really the educational benefits that I was alluding, alluding to, because I think, and, and I'm sure you would agree from your, your experience, um, it helps the reviewer be a better author um, and a better consumer of scientific information. Um, and again, given you know the important role uh, of reviewing in terms of, of uh, making sure that what's out there is the most valid and useful, um, it hopefully is a source of satisfaction and fulfillment because it really does make it an important contribution to the field. Reviewers can also obtain CME credit for their reviews. So, so those are some of the positives that come to my mind. Um, we do always need more good reviewers, and really all, all our listeners need to do uh, is to contact the journal uh, in practice at aaai.org. Um, and we have training resources available for those who would like to review but feel they'd benefit from some, some didactic material uh, providing optimal, uh, um, regarding providing optimal reviews for scientific articles. Great. And, you know, I can attest, I agree with you, it absolutely does make somebody a better writer. Um, you get a better sense of the different writing styles that are out there and, and different ways of really um, discussing and, and telling complicated stories, whether it's, uh, you know, randomized controlled trials or, or other types of articles. Um, so I, I find personal benefit as well. And, you know, when we talk about the authors, uh, what tips do you have for the authors who may be listening? And, you know, what types of original articles are you looking for in regards to submissions to JACI in practice? Well, and, and there's no question that as we, if from an author's standpoint, you would like to know, well, what, what are they looking for in, in an article um, to accept it? And, and so in a few words, we're looking for novelty, you know, the, the best written information, if it doesn't tell us anything new, we're not as likely to publish that. Validity, generalizability, clinical impact, and clear and transparent presentation. That, that's a, in a few words. But, but more specifically, what we ask ourselves about the, 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 a given article, and, you know, and which I hope answers the question of what we're looking for, is the subject important and the rationale for the subject clearly presented in the context of what's already known. We want the methods to be clearly described um, and appropriate to study the answer questions. There needs to be a sufficient number of patients and appropriate controls included. If it's an intervention study, very important for that intervention to be clearly described and the outcomes clearly described. We ask ourselves, does the text and the tables and the figure fully and adequately describe the results? Um, I mentioned validity. Um, one wants to be sure that the findings are valid after considering the potential role of, of bias, of confounding, and chance. Um, and then the question of generalizability. Um, is, this, are the, is this information something that really just would apply to the study sample? Or is it hopefully generalizable? We're looking, of course, for something generalizable. We want the message of the study to be clear and discussed against the background of current knowledge. Um, and we're looking for 
in the discussion, um, the limitations as well as the, the strengths. So those are sort of the, some of the things in original articles, um, many things actually, that we look for um, to try to again provide something that will be, that will warrant being used by our readers. Mm. And what, what resource would you direct uh, potential authors to in regards to finding um, additional information and details about the types of submissions and requirements and things like that? Yes, well, I mean, we we have our we have our instructions for authors, um, which is what I would what what I would start with. And one of the one of the things that you can find the links to in the instructions for authors are a number of statements um, that absolutely I mean that describe very well the criteria for various types of studies. Um, so there are there are a series of statements for randomized controlled trials, for observational studies, for diagnosis studies, for meta-analyses uh, and and systematic reviews. Some official statements that you can link from our from our instructions for authors um, that really describe very well how to present each of those types of studies. Okay, excellent. Oh, and then lastly, if you're if you're open to it, um, I'd like to discuss the concept of open access for peer-reviewed publications, which is somewhat of a bit of a hot topic. Can you highlight some of the discussion points surrounding this concept? Maybe even give us a mini mini version of a pro-con discussion surrounding that. Be happy to, because I agree with you. This is certainly a, a hot and controversial subject in the in the medical publishing world. Uh, for those who don't know, open access means that the content's free for the reader, not requiring journal subscription or any other fees. And of course, the idea of scientific, of scientific information being freely available to those who can use it is obviously appealing. But the reality is that scientific information isn't free, and the cost for producing it has to be borne by someone. The open access movement shifts that cost from the reader usually through subscriptions, either directly or, or through a professional organization such as ours. Um, so it shifts those costs from the reader to the author. And while this may not be inherently bad, what it has clearly done is led to the appearance of what are called predatory journals, which will apparently publish anything as long as the author pays to have it published. Certainly not all open access journals fit into this category, but this development has definitely led to the, to the dilution of the quality of the published scientific information. So the Academy is not against open access per se, and in fact, JACI and in practice offer an open access option for authors who want to pay for it, but the editorial decisions are independent of payment by the authors, which we think is critical to maintain the objectivity and lack of bias our readers expect. Um, one other relevant model of the traditional, one other relevant um, aspect of the traditional subscription model regards medical society, medical society-sponsored journals such as ours. Um, while society sponsorship doesn't influence editorial decisions, it does assure that the content and direction of the sponsored journals are in the best interest of the members, and I think that's positive for the specialists. Um, so, you know, I think that there, there of course, are some pros of open access, but right now, the best model, I think, is the mixed model, 
um, where open access is possible, but but not required. All right. Well, thank you. And, you know, Dr. Schatz, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today. I think this was a very insightful conversation. I learned a lot of new things uh, about a journal that I've been reading for years, uh, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. And before we say goodbye, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well, I, I would like to add a few things, actually, um, aside from appreciating appreciating uh, this opportunity uh, to, to have this podcast. But, but first, I want to say how much I appreciate the efforts of the many individuals who contribute so much to the journal, um, including our editorial board, our other reviewers, and, of course, our, of course, our authors um, who've chosen to publish their work with the journal. Um, I also very much appreciate the strong support of the Academy Board of Directors and the Academy staff. As I mentioned before, being editor-in-chief is a true labor of love for me, and and I think it is for the rest of the editorial team as well. And I definitely know I speak for the whole team when I say that that we will continue to work very hard um, to be able to optimally accomplish our journal mission on behalf of our readers. and, and I think I want to end by, by just reminding people of what we consider that mission to be. Our mission is to provide novel, valid, generalizable, and impactful information to support evidence-based clinical decisions in the diagnosis and management of asthma, allergic, immunologic, and related conditions. Um, and so again, I also want to thank you, Dave, uh, for, for allowing me to, to make this presentation. Oh, it's been it's been our pleasure. Thank you again. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaaai.org for any pertinent links from today's conversation, as well as a listing of all available episodes. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.